Welcome to Insult My Intelligence. Today we're talking about Neanderthals, who they were, what they were like, and where they went. To answer these questions, we have not one, but two Neanderthal experts taking us through some of the most recent research and what we know about Neanderthals' interactions with humans. Firstly, Professor Chris Stringer, research leader on human evolution at the London Natural History Museum, answering my first and most basic question. What is a Neanderthal? Okay, well, Neanderthals were a group of people that lived in Europe and Asia over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, they were distinct from us. Um, the name comes from a fossil found in 1856 in the Neander Valley in Germany, Neanderthal. And although it wasn't actually the first fossil found, it was the one that kind of got the recognition. And it was named as the type for a new species of human in 1864, Homo neanderthalensis. So, yeah, the Neanderthals, we've known about them for a long time. And views about them are constantly evolving as we learn more about them. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. I think we're finding out probably maybe more in the last 10 years than in the previous 100 years. Um, yes, arguably. Yeah, the DNA data particularly has come in the last, let's say, 11 years, and it's made a huge difference to the story. So we are a descended. I mean, we are homo sapiens, uh, but the Neanderthal were here in Europe when we got here. That's the idea, isn't it? That's right. Yes. So we were evolving in Africa, and at the same time, the Neanderthals as a separate line of evolution, we're evolving in Europe and Asia. And we had a common ancestor with them maybe 600,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and what is their, what are their dates? Yeah, so the first Neanderthal, it depends what you call a Neanderthal, of course, and there are disputes amongst scientists about how you recognize what a Neanderthal is. But the beginning of the Neanderthal line, I think, can certainly be traced back to some fossils from Spain at a site called Atapuerca. Uh, and those fossils are about 430,000 years old. And there are 29 partial skeletons found in, deep in a cave chamber there. It's a fantastic sample. And they show Neanderthal features in their teeth, for example, and even in their DNA. So the oldest human DNA has been recovered from a piece of a leg bone from Atapuerca. And it shows that they are on the Neanderthal lineage. So the Neanderthal lineage does go back that far. And our lineage, by implication, must go back at least as far since we had a common ancestor even further back. And and they were they were in Europe until as recently as well. The depends again who you ask, but the the <laughs> best dating evidence suggests around forty thousand years ago in Europe, they physically disappeared. It's possible because they lingered on in other areas where we don't have the data. So we know right. that in Western Asia, they were in Uzbekistan, they were in Siberia at times. We don't have a good fix on their disappearance in all those areas. But in Europe, I think the evidence is pretty good that they were they were gone by around 40,000 years ago. Uh, you mentioned uh, a common ancestor going back to 600,000 years? Yes, I mean, again, that's genetic estimates. Uh, it's got to be more than 430,000, given these Neanderthal-like fossils in Spain. Around 600,000, I think, is a, good, is a good guesstimate. Do we have a name for that common ancestor? Well, I used to have a name for it. I thought it was a species called Homo heidelbergensis, also known as Homo rhodesiensis. Sorry about all these names. Um, but that species was around uh, in Europe and Asia and Africa, around 500,000 years ago. And I used to think it was the common ancestor, and then it went in two different evolutionary directions. But new data, first of all, the dating of some of the Heidelbergensis fossils puts them too young to be ancestors. So, for example, there's a famous one 
from Africa, uh, from the Broken Hill site in Zambia, Kabwe. That fossil we now know is only 300,000 years old, so it obviously is too young to be the common ancestor. And even the older ones that we've got of this species, Heidelbergensis or Rhodesiensis, they further studies suggest they've got some derive some special features in their face, for example, which actually puts them closer to Neanderthals in some ways and less like us. And therefore, their face doesn't fit the model we've got for a common ancestor. So even that species may not be. There's a there's a species from Spain called Homo antecessor from about 850,000 years ago. That's got a face more like ours. That could be closer to the common ancestor. But really, I have to say we don't know. And we don't know where the common ancestor lived. It could have been Africa, but it could equally have lived in Asia or it could have been living in Europe. And then it migrated to the different places where we find Neanderthals and Homo sapiens later on. And these people called the Denisovans that we may have time to come on to later. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a bunch of names. Um, I, I think we used to didn't we didn't used to know that there were this many types of early modern human. But nowadays we think there are how many? Well, in terms of humans, yes. I mean, it's a it's a huge number. Of species. So even in the last. So even 70,000 years ago, which is like yesterday, geologically speaking, there were at least five kinds of humans around on the Earth. So we had been evolving in Africa. The Neanderthals had been evolving in Europe and Asia. The Denisovans uh, were over in East Asia. And on the islands of Southeast Asia, we've got these weird dwarf species that we've only learned about recently. Uh, Homo floresiensis on the island of Flores in Indonesia, nicknamed the Hobbit because of its tiny size. And on the Philippines, a species called Homo luzonensis, both of those small-bodied, very small-brained, and likely to have been isolated on those islands for hundreds of thousands of years uh, in their own little evolutionary world. So strange stories there. So at least five kinds of human, even 70,000 years ago, and we're the only survivors of those. And before that, even more. So I mentioned Heidelbergensis, Antisessor, there was Homo erectus, Homo naledi in, in southern Africa. So a lot of diversity. So we're in an, a weird time now when there's only one kind of human around. Are we one of the more recent uh, emergences from that? or Yes, that's right. Well, we, we don't. Obviously, I've mentioned Heidelbergensis. That was around certainly 600,000 years ago down to 300,000. We and the Neanderthals, as I say, probably had a common ancestor 600,000 years ago. So we're relatively recent arrivals. Homo erectus, which we think was still around in Indonesia 100,000 years ago, that goes back probably 2 million years. So that species is incredibly long-lived compared with us and the Neanderthals. So we are relative newcomers. DNA testing shows that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are clearly distinct species. But when they first uncovered Neanderthal bones in the 19th century, they didn't have DNA testing. How did they know Neanderthals weren't Homo sapiens? Well, at first, they didn't. Remember when Chris Stringer said that the find in the Neander Valley wasn't actually the first? The first was actually in Gibraltar, eight years earlier. Here's archaeologist Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. And in that case, that was an entire skull that was taken out from a quarry in Gibraltar. Um, it was covered a little bit in concretions, which might have made sort of recognising it a bit difficult. But it is kind of surprising that considering the people involved in that were, um, I mean, they were the quarry workers probably, but it came to prominence because it was part of the scientific society on Gibraltar at this time in the 1840s. And that included educated officers and they would have had 
you know, people with some medical background probably involved with this, but nobody saw anything weird in this skull. Although when you look at it now, you can see like the eyes are, are really big, you know, the, what we call the orbits, the holes for the eyes and also the hole for the nose. It does look really quite odd looking, um, but they didn't sort of, you know, make a note of that or anything. It's just noted in the minutes of the discovery for the society. It's just a skull is presented. Um, so they don't say anything more. Whereas when you fast forward to the 1850s with the German find, what came out there was not a whole skull. It was actually the top of a skull and sort of parts from across the body. So sort of one arm, leg, you know, bits, bits like this. So we didn't have the whole skeleton there. But that was enough for the people working in the quarry there to realise that it wasn't an animal. And those remains were then basically sent up sort of the intellectual food chain and, and ended up with a, an anatomist in Bonn. Um, and he was able to compare it with material in the collections there, um, including like somebody who was classed as a giant, um, you know, and even in that sense, he could still see that not only were there shape differences, but the thickness of the bones were also distinct. So as they began to find more and more pieces, it wasn't really till the 1880s that there was like sort of skulls with whole parts of bodies and also with with artifacts, with archaeological objects as well. Um, so that's kind of when it came together. But in terms of how how different they looked, not only is it in the face, we're saying that the nose is really quite big, got large eyes, they didn't really have a chin like we have. I mean, you know, people look like they have variable chins. Some people might have a, a really big one, but actually everybody has this like, little bony thing. You can feel it underneath um, your your flesh. Um, and they didn't have that. It kind of just went back gently, sloping back to the neck. The whole shape of the skull also, we have quite sort of odd balloon-shaped sort of skulls really um, look a bit um and neanderthal skulls are much more sort of swept back and at the rear of their skull as well and um, they mostly uh, often have um a little lump called a, an occipital bun and um, just at the back there so that is also a distinctive feature but then all over the rest of their body there's other sort of tiny little features and other things that are more noticeable so they're a bit shorter than us their rib cage um, is more flared so where we you know depending on how how fit we are and how much weight we're carrying we we should have a little waist <laughs> basically and and they don't really have that so they look a lot more like a barrel in that sense but still overall you know people have said for a very long time decades and decades if you dress a neanderthal up and you know people say oh on the new york subway well let's say on the london tube would you look twice you probably would look twice at their face they would just look like a, a human sitting there. This perception of their physical features led to many false assumptions about Neanderthals, as Chris Stringer explained. Yeah, this is the problem. I mean, the, you know, the Neanderthal finds started to appear, of course, when evolution was being developed as an idea and human evolution was being talked about. And so therefore, people looked to the fossil record to find the evidence for human evolution, that they should be more ape-like creatures, if you like. And... For a long time, we didn't have fossils from Africa, which represented the very early stages of evolution. So, you know, there are fossils in Africa between 2 million and 7 million years old, which represent the early stages of human evolution. The first of those was found in 1924. So right. a lot of the time the Neanderthal story was developing, some people pushed the Neanderthals into this missing link position 
because they believed in evolution, they thought, well, there should be some, you know, missing links, as they called yeah. them. And so the Neanderthal was depicted as being bent-kneed and head-hung forward and uh, grasping big toes. The, some of the reconstruction have them covered in hair like an ape. Um, and, of course, those are wrong. The Neanderthals were fully human. They walked upright as well as we can. Their brains were as big as ours, sometimes even bigger on average. Um, but they were a different kind of human. But they were fully human and, and not a, a missing link. They were not, in, in their own way, they were as evolved as we are because they have a virtually identical evolutionary history uh, over the last few hundred thousand years in parallel from that common ancestor. So they had evolved from that those ancient creatures in Africa for millions of years as, as we had. Not only are they not our sort of ancestor in that sense, but we, we overlapped with them by a considerable margin more, I guess, than people used to even realise. Yeah, that's right. So there was a view which you know, I subscribed to probably, say, 20, 25 years ago that, you know, we had a completely separate evolution, them in Europe and Asia, us in Africa. Then we came out maybe 50,000 years ago, and there was a brief period of overlap, and then they all disappeared. So that was the very simple view. Um, and part of the superiority and infer inferiority thing was that people said, well, of course they disappeared. We were vastly superior. We must have had better brains and better technology. And we just, you know, they couldn't compete and they just went under. As soon as we were competing with them, they were doomed. And so that was a prevailing view for a long time. And as you say, we now know that we overlap with them. And in fact, there are We've had a number of meetings with Neanderthals, which we can map. So genetically, from Neanderthal DNA and Homo sapiens DNA, it seems there was a meeting of Neanderthals about 300,000 years ago in Homo sapiens. And we actually exchanged some DNA then, but it didn't lead to their disappearance. Um, and then there was a series of meetings later on, and we can map them in Europe now, for example, between 40,000 and 50,000 years ago, there were a series of overlaps. And again, the Neanderthals didn't go under as soon as they met modern humans. There's evidence that there was an ebb and flow of these populations, and it wasn't until we get to 40,000 that the Neanderthals finally physically disappear. But we know that those overlaps were also accompanied by some interbreeding, and we don't know how that happened, of course. we, you know, Was it friendly? Was it hostile? There's all those scenarios. Mistaken identity. Yeah, I mean... You know, we really don't know. So it goes all the way from having, you know, the, the, the meeting peacefully and exchanging partners. That's that's one scenario. I mean, that would be a nice one to believe. But at the other extreme, you've got the behavior of some hunter-gatherers today and chimpanzees today where a group of males, if they run out of females, they will just raid a neighboring group and steal some females. I mean, that could have happened too. Maybe Homo sapiens individuals came upon some orphaned Neanderthal babies. Uh, where the parents had died, or maybe they killed the parents even, but they adopted the babies into their group and they grew up as, as Homo sapiens children within the modern human group, which is why their DNA then continues in us today. And, and we three have probably each got around 2% Neanderthal DNA in our genomes today from that ancient interbreeding. And that that percentage exists in almost anyone who's from Europe or Asia, is that Right. That, right. Yeah. So people outside of Africa, um, so Europe's European Asians, Australian Aborigines, Native Americans, uh, we've all got around two percent Neanderthal DNA. It's a much lower level in Africa because the populations there didn't interact with Neanderthals 
as as our ancestors outside of Africa did, but they have got bits of Neanderthal DNA because, of course, population continue mixing, the spread of the Roman Empire around North Africa, trading down the west, the East African coast from places like uh, you know Southeast Asia that spread Neanderthal DNA into Africa at a later date. So even Africans have some Neanderthal mm-hmm. DNA, but we have people outside of Africa have more. And in fact, interestingly, Chinese populations, for example, have slightly more Neanderthal DNA on average than European ones do. Who's, have they got the most? Who's got the most? They've got a little bit more on average. Um, and it's thought that could be that our, our DNA has been a bit diluted by mixture, again, with people from Africa and the Roman Empire and so on. That mixture diluted a little bit of the Neanderthal in Europe, but the populations over in Eastern Asia didn't have that dilution, so they've got a slightly higher level of Neanderthal DNA. But it's only about half a percent extra in some cases. It's, right. not, it's not much. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I just wanted to ask um, if there's any evidence that, that either Homo sapiens or uh, Neanderthals uh, interbred with any other early humans? You mentioned Denisovans before. Um, yes, yes. I confess, so, I don't. I only sort of know what a Denisovan is. Yeah, so um, there's a cave site in in southern Siberia in the Altai Mountains of Russia uh, called Denisova Cave, and Russian archaeologists have been excavating this for more than fifty years, I think, and they had found some tiny fragments of human, but they were so fragmentary they couldn't really say what kind of human it was. Although the teeth were very big, they they thought they might even be Homo erectus teeth because they were so large, but no one could be sure what they were. And then geneticists started to analyze these fragments. And uh, in 2010, they found that, you know, they got even a whole genome out of a tiny bit of a finger bone. And that uh, such great preservation, it was almost like a modern bone in terms of the preservation, probably because of the cold conditions of the cave. And that was distinct from Neanderthal DNA. It was distinct from our DNA. So these people became known as Denisovans. They're slightly closer related to Neanderthals than they are to us. So it looks like they're an early offshoot of the Neanderthal line, possibly 500,000 years ago. So an early offshoot. And they're a third kind of human alongside us and the Neanderthals. And we don't know much about them physically at the moment. They've got big teeth. We know that. <laughs> um, and um, there, there is a fossil jawbone from the Tibetan plateau of China, which uh, has got big teeth and it's very robust, and that jawbone has been thought to be maybe a Denisovan jawbone. And sure enough, they managed to get a little bit of not DNA but fossil protein out of it, which matched more closely the the fossil proteins in the Denisovan fossils from Denisova Cave than Neanderthal Homo sapiens. So that jawbone suggests the Denisovans may have been in China, and indeed there are a number of fossils from China from this time period, including the the fossil of Dragon Man, which got a lot of publicity. Last year, I was involved in publishing Dragon Man. It's a beautifully preserved skull, over 150,000 years old from China, and it's got a pretty big brain. Uh, it's got uh, big brow ridges, but it has a face much more like our face. And it's got one tooth in the upper jaw, it's preserved, the rest of all fallen out, and it's a great big molar. So that could well be a Denisovan as well. But until we have its DNA or its proteins, we, we can't be sure. So the Denisovans probably were widespread. And they interbred with us because what's interesting is once we had the Denisovan genome, scientists found that there were traces of Denisovan-like DNA in people in Asia and particularly in Ireland, Southeast Asia. 
So people in the Philippines, people in Australia and New Guinea, natives in those regions, have some of them 4% of Denisovan-like DNA in their genome. So they have Neanderthal DNA at about 2%, as, as Europeans do, for example, and they have about 4%, some of them, of Denisovan DNA from a second interbreeding phase. Although interbreeding occurred, the mixing of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens tribes was likely infrequent. So how different were the lives of Neanderthals to early Homo sapiens in the period when they lived alongside one another in Europe? The archaeologist Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes is also the author of the book Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. Here she is explaining what life was really like for Neanderthals. I think it's really true to say that the, the apparent gap behaviourally between us and them has shrunk hugely over the past three, four decades. We we have so much more evidence now that, as you as you said, that they did not just hunt big animals. First of all, they actually were exceptionally good hunters. They were, that was a previous argument that they were just rubbish at hunting. <laughs> and that turned out to be clearly not true. So they were very good at hunting, but they hunted a variety of things. Um, they seemed to kind of really just go for what's the best around them. So in some times and places, that's going to be big stuff like rhinos, mammoth. In other environments or climatic contexts, it's going to be smaller things like red deer, roe deer, boar, this stuff like that. But also the the whole argument about what they hunted was tied into the to one sort of large theory that our success was because we had a broader spectrum in our diet. We were able to basically just take anything and be hyper adaptive and be like, oh, I've, you know, I'm going to have some small game over there, some rabbits and birds and stuff. And, and the idea is Neanderthals were just too sort of thick, really, to be able to, to work out how to hunt a rabbit or catch a bird. And again, those ideas just are not supported now. It is true that Everywhere we look, the majority of their diet is large to medium game. But it is perfectly clear that when they wanted to or, or had to, they could catch small stuff. They were foraging around on the shoreline and that wasn't an issue. Um, and really, when you compare it to the diets of early Homo sapiens people who are contemporary with them, you just can't really see a difference because there's because there's so much diversity between those as well not every not all early homo sapiens people ate the same stuff either that's really dependent on where they are and things like this and there's definite evidence that they used fire maybe no hard evidence that they they knew how to create fire maybe they just foraged for fire as you might say but but there is some evidence that they probably did just based on i guess how often they had fires yeah absolutely they they were using fire no question there they we we have some sites i mean i think it comes down to part partly to do with preservation um where we have good sites that are well preserved um and the conditions favor it you know we have say there's a, a, a spanish site i talk about a lot in the book um abric romani it's very very uh, huge huge rock shelter um with very deep deposits and um, there's like 20 layers so far that have been excavated and like one layer you have 60 hearths that's not all from the same 
phase of use. So that's going to be what we call a palimpsest, where it looks like it's all jumbled together. But actually, if you picked it out, it'd be different phases. But that's, you know, you've still got 60 hearts there. That's quite clear. And that's just one layer in, in one site. So we it's very obvious that they, they were using fire cooking, um, but also to uh, probably just to light the evenings for warmth, for safety. And also uh, we can see in some cases that they are using uh, fire to char wooden tools just because it's easier to sort of scrape very tough woods if you char it first so it's part of their lives but like you say there is there has been some debate as to whether they knew how to make it personally i think they could but the issue with that has been around some sites in france during a particularly cold period neanderthals are living there but there's very little evidence for burning um, and so people have said, well, maybe they, they kind of just forgot how to use fire. <laughs> um, I don't really buy that. I think it's much more likely that they are making fires just not inside the cave, because this is something that's the case in a lot of places. They don't live deep, deep inside caves. And we find their archaeology sort of in, you know, initial chambers, but also they're living outside caves, around cave mouths, and sometimes that stuff's just not preserved. But, you know, you can actually survive to some extent without fire. Like, you don't have to cook everything. Um, I think that's partly to do with our own assumptions about it's weird to eat raw meat, but ethnographically it's not necessarily that weird if you look at, you know, traditional hunter and gatherer societies. So Neanderthals are sometimes portrayed as an Ice Age anomaly, something that was suited to this one environment but we now know that they lived through a period of what they and were adapted to a period of total climactic chaos yes um i mean through that time span between about 400 to 350,000 years ago and then all the way through to 40,000 years that's a massive span of time and that's not just like one ice age um while perhaps some of their biology and survival was like honed during the especially challenging, really cold periods. And I think in some senses, um, given the fact that when it does get very cold during glacial periods, they basically abandon Northern Europe, um, but they're always there in the Mediterranean. You know, listening to cicadas and seeing the lovely blue ocean around that's just as much a Neanderthal world. Um, and they may well have been best adapted for that kind yeah. of world. You know, we, yeah, we keep thinking that they are super adapted to step tundra. Maybe that's actually just, you know, they could deal with that, but it wasn't actually what they preferred. They also, I mean, we tend to think of uh, ge uh, geological climate changes as being, you know, huge periods f with generation after generation of, people living through them very slowly obviously you have a chance to adapt but they lived through something called the late emian aridity pulse which was in total 468 years of absolute <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah we wouldn't have lived through that well i mean we might be having to live through something <laughs> like that imminently <laughs> um the emian is the the name for one of these warm periods that Neanderthals existed through. It's actually the warmest that we know um, that they dealt with. It's about, um, about sort of 123,000 years ago. So the climate then was 
depending on different estimates, um, maybe two to four degrees warmer than now, maybe just sort of one to two. But you can see what's happening already with our climate. And we're not even at two degrees. And like what you just said about, you know, climate change and it's over, you know, we think of it as a slow thing. But in, in a lot of cases for Neanderthals, climate change was happening over like the span of a lifetime. It would have been very noticeable. And sometimes over like a decade, you would have a significant change in temperature. And with all the sort of the 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 knock on impacts on on environments, plants, animals, what the herds are doing, things like this. Um, but yeah, we, we can move uh, rather they could move and we can't um, now yeah. our population is so massive. Um, so it's it's a, a really different sort of uh, context in terms of having to adapt. Neanderthal life is often portrayed as sort of massive, losing fight for survival. But what were they like culturally? Well, I mean, this funny, like, you know, this idea about fighting for survival, that's kind of a really distinct understanding of, of how nature works and sort of evolution as being like this battle between organisms and everything's very sort of you know combat and everything and I'm not sure that's how humans really experience their lives generally outside of you know huge disasters and things like this um I think Neanderthals were had lives very much like we see in other hunting and gathering populations um sometimes they would have been starving hungry because that's just how it happens other times you know they would have had the ability to relax and and enjoy enjoy a bit of sun because <laughs> of course it did still have nice sunny days even on the on the cold um step um but yeah into like what made them successful they i think their groups were based quite significantly around cooperative action um there's a structure to their lives that a rhythm that is very very comparable to to just the way that hunting and gathering peoples live but um like you said like with art and the question of you know spiritual stuff when we look at the the ethnographic record for hunting and gathering peoples those aspects of their lives are always there that's 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 part of what defines homo sapiens whatever kind of lifestyle you have um so did Neanderthals have something like that? Well, for me, I think that there is a good argument to be made that not only were they very skilled um, and aware of the material properties of the world around them for practical purposes, but they were also interested in the aesthetics of materials, like using colour to change surfaces incising lines and things like this what we can't see with neanderthals so far is um you know like any dramatic paintings on cave walls or clear representations of people or animals um you know like a scene we can't see that but the past sort of 10-15 years we've seen more and more evidence um sort of spread around the all the different sites so it's not it's not abundant but it's it's there um of an interest in pigment in mineral pigment so color um of making repeated incisions on things um sort of and there was a really recent find um from germany uh just um last year um which was the toe bone of a giant deer 
um, which had really quite a structured engraving on it, kind of like interlocking sort of chevrons. So like, you know, lines kind of perpendicular to each other um, and, and meeting. And that's pretty much the most advanced graphic thing that we have found for Neanderthals. So then, what did happen to the Neanderthals? Did Homo sapiens have anything to do with their disappearance? So, I mean, given that Neanderthals had language like us, they made fire like us, they had art as far as we knew, they had some, you know, evidence that they did some sort of primitive seafaring. They may have looked after each other medically in some fashion. Yes, they certainly did that at times. Yeah. Um, the notion that we outcompeted them, that uh, we're the gray squirrels and they're the red squirrels, uh, starts to fall apart. And it, it, it doesn't become a compelling reason to think that's how Neanderthals disappeared. So why did they disappear? Yeah, that is one of the big mysteries. And the Denisovans too, and Homo floresiensis over in uh, you know Flores and, and, and Luzonensis in the Philippines. They all disappeared. And it certainly does coincide with this major dispersal of modern humans after 60,000 years ago. So I think there is a connection between their disappearances and our spread. But is it a direct connection? I mean, some people think there was warfare and we we killed them off. I think that's very unlikely. And as I've already explained, we know that in Europe, for example, there were these ebbs and flows of these populations over thousands of years. So there's no sign of the Neanderthals suddenly giving up the ghost as soon as modern humans come up. Um, they come back, actually, and at times replace the modern humans in the same sites. So, um, you know, it's it's. I think it's more of a close match than we used to believe in terms of their capabilities. Um, and it probably didn't take much to tip them over the edge. So the Neanderthals, I mentioned, already were low in numbers and low in genetic diversity. So they already genetically in the last few thousand years, you could say they probably were a threatened species. So in that situation, it doesn't take much to tip you over the edge. Um, and perhaps modern humans, obviously, they're going to be competing for the resources. So modern humans coming to Europe, they're going to want to you know, they'll be hunting the same animals as the Neanderthals, collecting the same plant resources as the, as the Neanderthals. They're going to be wanting to live in the best cave sites and so on. So there could have been an economic competition between the groups and the Neanderthals lost out. And it couldn't, it might have just been, you know, very small edges. So, for example, um, eyed needles. So we have eyed needles um, for sewing, which we know of for modern humans. Um, as far as I know, there are none that are attributed to Neanderthals, but even having the eyed needle would make a huge difference to your survival in cold weather because you can sew your clothing, make it much more efficient. You can sew your skins together to make better shelters. You can cover your babies in very efficient, warm clothing, and we know how important that was for infant survival. So even small things like that could give you 1% or 2% better infant survival, and that would could be the difference between survival or not. So I think it could have been actually quite small measures that gave us the edge over Neanderthals. And in some ways, you could say they were unlucky. At times, the weather certainly could have been against them, um, and it could have been against our, our, our modern humans too. But if the Neanderthals were already lower in number, they, they would have gone down faster. And if we were able to grow our numbers, which it looks like we were doing compared with the Neanderthals, that could have given us the edge. And also, I think the breeding question is an interesting one that I've mentioned, you know, the fact that obviously the Neanderthal DNA is coming into the modern human gene pool. What's interesting is in that period 40 to 60,000 years ago, as far as I know, there's no evidence of it going the other way. 
Now, that either means that it didn't go the other way and the breeding was in one direction, or it was going into Neanderthals, but those hybrids, for whatever reason, were not surviving in the same way. But the net effect would be that you would be removing prime age reproductive individuals from the Neanderthal gene pool because, you know, if Neanderthals were joining the modern human gene pool, they're being lost from the Neanderthal gene pool. So if it's more of a one-way process, you know, that's that's doomed for a species if its prime age adults are breeding somewhere else in another population. And that could be, that could be part of it. Yeah. I mean, for whatever reason, you know, again, if they were capturing Neanderthal females, they're taking them out of the Neanderthal group in a very direct way. But if also Neanderthal individuals were somehow preferring to be in the modern human groups, again, that's bad news for the Neanderthals. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, is it fanciful to think uh, that Neanderthals just basically have, I mean, they haven't really gone extinct, that they live on, they, they're just us? Yeah. I mean, there's about 2% in, in each of us, and it's not the same 2% in each of us. So uh, one estimate suggests you could reconstruct about 50% of a Neanderthal genome just from the DNA of people today. So, yeah, so they are still, parts of them certainly live on us, and, and it's still active, that DNA. So there's medical evidence that some of this DNA is still active in our immune systems, for example, and the Denisovan DNA is still active in populations. So there's a for populations that live in Tibet today at high altitude and modern humans, there's a bit of DNA which seems to have come from Denisovans and is helping those populations live at high altitude. So, you know, they've actually helped us in some ways to survive, but also it swings them roundabout. So some of these are immune systems that we picked up from the Neanderthals. So imagine you know, we came out of Africa. We didn't have any natural immunity to the diseases outside of Africa, whereas the Neanderthals had evolved them over hundreds of thousands of years. By interbreeding with the Neanderthals, we got a quick fix to our immune systems and picked up their immune defenses. That was good news 40 or 50,000 years ago. But today, in our present lifestyle, it's actually leading to autoimmune diseases. So in a way, some of that DNA has maybe made our immune systems too sensitive. Uh, so things like Crohn's disease and bilirubin cirrhosis lupus these seem to be related to little bits of neanderthal dna so in terms of their disappearance i mean obviously being low in numbers doesn't help and it that, that's certainly probably a contributing factor some theories have a single environmental catastrophe that attributes this uh, like the magnetic poles flipping yeah yeah so that's a recent suggestion so yes sudden cold spells uh this huge magnetic paleomagnetic event about 42,000 years ago where the Earth's poles started to change position and there was a lot of um, extra cosmic radiation arriving on the Earth's surface. Um, the trouble is with these things is they're going to hit modern humans too. I mean, that cosmic event at 42,000 would have hit everything on the surface of the Earth, not just Neanderthals. So it was a, if it was really as bad as they say, you know, modern humans should have been badly hit too. Um, and the cold spells, again, modern humans would have been hit by those as well. So, again, that's why I'm suggesting that perhaps having just a slight edge in survivability, in the ability to get by through cultural buffering, through your clothing, through your behavior, through your technology, just a small edge might have got us through and not the Neanderthals. But what's more complicated, and we've got to explain this in the long term, is the Denisovans. Now, as I've mentioned, they were living up in Siberia. They were probably down in Southeast Asia in the tropics and subtropics. So they covered a much wider ecological range, we think, than the Neanderthals. And the evidence is that genetically they were more diverse than the Neanderthals. So why did they go under? 
you know, that's another. So, we, you know, we might be able to explain the Neanderthals by, you know, the very cold spells in Europe. But why would people living in Southeast Asia in the tropics or subtropics, as we think they were, why would they disappear? So you, we need a kind of global explanation that works not just in Western Europe, but across the whole range. And Floresiensis, the Lusinensis, um, they also um, disappeared. So, so yeah, it's it's not just about Neanderthal extinction. We need a model that explains the disappearance of these other humans as well. And at least in the case of Denisovans, the interbreeding explanation helps as well that we may have been taking up their individuals into our gene pool. But, you know, they were living over a wider area, more diverse. Who knows about their behaviour? We, we have no idea what behaviour the uh, Denisovans in Southeast Asia were getting up to. We really have got so much to learn there. This is this is very much. I just want to say this is very much Johnny's question. <laughs> um, he he did the other question that you said was a good question as well, but this is Johnny's question. If you gave a Neanderthal a shave and a shower and put him in a suit, would anyone give him a second look today? Yeah, that's a that's, that's a good question, and that's been said before. Because you know, there's. Um, there's the, the thing about dressing an outer up as a modern human and put him on the New York subway and no one will bat an eyelid. And I've often sometimes said, well, maybe that says more about the New York subway <laughs> than it says about Neanderthals. Um, I think it was Steve Jones who said, you know, if a, if a Cro-Magnon, an early modern human from Europe, came and sat next to you on the tube, you might change seats. But if a Neanderthal did it, you might change carriages. Now, again, that may be unfair on the Neanderthals. Um, because what we know is, and, and the trouble is, you know, we've got these lovely reconstructions of Neanderthals now. There's there's the brutish ones from the 1900s where they're made very ape-like. And now if you go to our exhibition in London at the Natural History Museum, we've got this lovely model done by the Kennis brothers of a Neanderthal. And he looks really very like us. But of course, we don't know how hairy they were even. We don't know how much facial hair they had. They had this big brow ridge, this big nose. So you know, it's difficult to know how different they really would have looked in the flesh. Yeah. Would we have thought friendly or, or hostile? And oh. what's interesting is this Neanderthal that we've got from the Kennis brothers, it's got a kind of quizzical expression looking at you. Who, who do you think you are? And they got that from a picture of Sean Connery. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so very human in that sense, yeah. But our last question is, um, how would a Neanderthal baby fare if it was raised by Homo sapiens today? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I think everything that we can see, for me, about how Neanderthals lived, I think that they would become part of a family and they would be able to adapt to some level of communicating how much level of of the complexity of our language they could deal with. I'm not sure, but I'm sure they would be able to communicate with us. I'm sure they'd be able to make you know their desires understood. I'm sure that they would look just as cute as our babies. Um, you know, they, they would have had really sweet little baby feet and, you know, you'd have probably wanted to give them a cuddle and things. But I think it, other than having one that, that was raised now, if you transported a Neanderthal from 100,000 years ago to now, um, you know, an adult, I think they would love to just like check out all the stuff in your house and just be like wow what's this made of you know like you know i think that they would be super interested in the material world that we live in absolutely thanks for listening to insult my intelligence hosted by me tim dowling and produced by johnny dowling thanks to my guests professor chris stringer and dr rebecca rag sykes and go follow us on twitter at insult my intel 
If you have an idea or a topic for an episode, email us at insultmyintel at gmail.com or visit our website, insultmyintelshow.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening from. 